in Mark chapter 12 and verse 1, Mark chapter 12, verse 1, the Bible says, And he began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard, and set a hedge about it, and digged a place for the wine fat, and built a tower, and let it out to husbandmen, and went into a far country. And at the season he sent to the husbandmen a servant, that he might receive from the husbandmen of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him, and beat him, and sent him away empty. And again he sent unto them another servant, and at him they cast stones, and wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him, and killed him, and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen, and will give the vineyard unto others. And have ye not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, and they left him and went their way. Now, Mark chapter 12, this is Passover week in Jerusalem. Jesus has had the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. He has gone into the temple. And what has happened during this time is a series of, converse, of conversations and a series of confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the religious leaders. There were a number of things going on in Jerusalem under the name of religion that were against God's will. Uh, last week, uh, we t well, the past couple of weeks, we talked about the money changers in the temple and what they were doing. Jesus confronted the money changers. When Jesus threw the money changers out, the Pharisees came, and they said, By what authority do you do these things? And Jesus said, I'll tell you by what authority if you tell me whether the baptism of John, whether his ministry was of God or of man. And they didn't want to answer that question. Because John preached against what the Pharisees were doing too. So they didn't want to validate the ministry of someone who was critical of them, but at the same time, if they said that John was a, wasn't of God, that he was of man, then that would have upset a lot of people. So they're in a difficult place politically here. And so they didn't answer the question. So Jesus said, I'm not going to answer your question then. And then he gives them the, this parable of the husbandman. And he tells a story. There was a man who planted a vineyard. He purchased the property. He planted the vineyard. He built a hedge around it, dug the wine fat. I don't know what a wine fat is, okay? Wine but he dug, do what? A wine press, okay. Well, he dug it. So it's not material to what we're looking at, but he basically what we find is that this man thoroughly furnished the vineyard. He bought it. He built it. He built it up. He planted it. He got it going. And he's going to go into a far country. And so he lends it out to husbandmen. These men are responsible for growing the fruit, for harvesting the fruit, for pressing the wine, 
for making this vineyard produce. Who does the vineyard belong to? The master. Mm -hmm. Who is working it? The husbandman. Who wants the vineyard to belong to them? The husbandman. We got something going on here. This whole thing was a parallel of the history of Israel. Because God brought Israel out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, mm -hmm. through the wilderness, into the promised land. God conquered the promised land for Israel. As you read the book of Joshua, you will read where God was literally fighting the battles for them. Throwing stones at their enemies from heaven. I'm just basically giving the Israelites divine intervention that gave them supernatural victories over their enemies as they conquered the promised land. God gave them the promised land. And God taught them how to practice. He taught them how to worship. But what happened was the people of Israel decided to do their own thing. And so God sent prophets to them to call them to repentance. And they killed the prophets. They imprisoned the prophets. They tortured the prophets. That's parallel to how these husbandmen killed and beat the servants that were sent to them to collect the fruit. And Jesus said that this owner of the vineyard sent his son, saying, they'll reverence my son. But the husbandman said, oh, here comes the heir. If we kill him, there'll be nobody left to lead the vineyard to except us. We'll kill him. What Jesus has done here is he has laid out the entire situation. He has told the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes what they're going to do. He has told them what's going to happen this week. Jesus is not surprised by him being taken prisoner, by him being arrested. He knows it's coming. He was prepared for this. God knew Israel's rebellion before it ever happened, and he had a plan to turn their rebellion into our redemption. And Jesus has laid it all out here. At Passover, they would kill God's only begotten son, but it would be through his death that our sins would be paid for, that salvation would be available to us if we repent and believe. Now one has to wonder what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were thinking. Did they really think they could kill the Son of God and get away with it? Did they really think they could kill the Messiah and keep the kingdom for themselves? Did they think that God would just let it happen, that there would be no repercussions, that God would, the same God who conquered the tribes that were in the land before they went in, did they really think that they were going to be able to kill God's only begotten Son and get away with it? You have to wonder, what were these guys thinking? Did they think they could get away with it? It's easy for us to look back on the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and say, man, you guys are stupid. It's easy for us to look back on the Israelites going through the wilderness and say, why do y'all keep murmuring? You went through the Red Sea. That must have been amazing. He's giving you manna from heaven. That must be amazing. Why are y'all complaining? It's easy for us to look back on the people in the Bible and say, Man, that was boneheaded. But how do you get to doing boneheaded things? You don't wake up one day and say, I think I'll do something stupid today. I think I did that a couple of times in college. But by and large, as a general rule, 
You don't wake up and say, I think I'll wreck my life today. I think I'll declare war on God today. I think I will destroy my family today. You don't wake up one day and say, okay, that's what I'm going to do, all right? I'm going to destroy everything, and I'm going to head for the hills. No, you, you get there through a series of small decisions, through a series of small attitude adjustments. How did the Pharisees and the Sadducees get to a point where they thought that they could maintain their power, prestige, and wealth, and their positions by killing Jesus? How did they get to that point? And that's, by the way, that's what they're thinking. Because the Bible tells us in the book of John that Caiaphas said that if this continues, the Romans will come and take away our kingdom and our place. But it is needful that one should die for the nation, right? Okay, so this is the idea. They're going to, keep, they're going to kill Jesus so they can all keep their, their, their jobs, their power, their positions, their prestige, their wealth. This is what they're thinking. How did they get to that point? How did they get to that point where they're actually saying it would be a good idea to kill God in the flesh? How do you get there? You get there by over years thinking and focusing on and being concerned with worldly things. Power. Jesus told the Pharisees that they loved the greetings in the markets. They loved to dress up and put on a show for each other. They loved the prestige. They loved to have men call them by titles. They loved titles. They couldn't get enough titles. All right? If I can get three or four titles in front of my name, I have made it. The renowned Reverend Dr. Leland Acker. Let's put an esteemed in front of that, shall we? The esteemed, renowned, reverend, Dr. Leland Acker. I mean, they love that stuff. I, I say it, it sounds stupid. But they love that stuff. They, they, they got a thrill out of that. They were consumed with power, with prestige. They saw wealth as a sign of God's favor and his, and his blessing. And so if they were doing well financially, that meant that God liked them better than the poor man. And so they were justified in mistreating the poor because God had made them rich. Therefore, they were more loved by God than the poor man. They thought in terms of the here and now. They thought in terms of what I have in front of me that's tangible. That's what their focus was. And they had forgotten all about the Lord. Though they went to synagogue on Saturdays, on the Sabbath day. They went to temple at the prescribed times. They put on the show of religion. They went through the religious motions. But they did it. For worldly purposes. Mm -hmm. And how often does that happen in our day? Where we go to church. We go to church. We may listen to Christian radio. We serve. We volunteer. We donate. But our minds are on worldly things. Power. Prestige. Wealth. The here and now. The tangible. The politics. How much do we think and meditate on God versus how much do we think and meditate on the things of the world? Are we looking forward to God's kingdom or are we looking forward to our own kingdoms? It's very easy. To look at these Pharisees and these Sadducees and these scribes and say, man, these guys are just, they're not with it. They're out of it. They, 
they, um, man, they were so stuck on themselves, they had the Son of God standing right in front of them and didn't even notice. It'd be so easy to get down on them. Mm-hmm. But what we have to do is we have to learn to see ourselves in these characters in the Bible. Because these same weaknesses that led these men to destruction, guess what? We have those same weaknesses. And to say that we don't have those same weaknesses is an exercise of self-deception. And it is pride that sets us up for the fall. So we have to guard our hearts, we have to guard our minds, we have to guard our souls. And make sure that we are not falling into the same mindsets as these Pharisees and these Sadducees and these scribes. Why do I keep separating them? Pharisees, they were the ones that it was all about power and politics and financial wealth, and and they were the movers and shakers of the day. Your Sadducees, they were the intellectuals and the elite. They were the ones that were so smart that they had determined that God's word wasn't all it was cracked up to be. You know, the ones that are like, well, these simpletons believe the Bible, but we have come up with a better wisdom. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in being resurrected. They didn't believe in the eternal kingdom. They believed that your personal holiness was just for your well-being and for you to be a good person while you were on this earth. The scribes, these are guys that copy pages of the scriptures because they didn't have the printing press yet. And so you can imagine if your job in life is is to copy the book of Isaiah over and over again, you'd probably get a good idea of what the book of Isaiah said. The problem with the scribes is they knew the words, but they didn't know the meaning. And today we have movers and shakers, don't we? We have those that are all about the power and the prestige. We have those that have attained a higher level of wisdom and intellect and understanding. And they can tell us why everything that we believed in the Bible all these years is actually not quite true. You see that in college campuses quite a bit. And then we have the guys, they know a lot about what the scripture says. They can quote it for you. They can even use it in an argument but they don't really know what it means. Got to be careful about that. We have to be careful we don't make these same mistakes. How do we avoid these mistakes? We avoid these mistakes by remembering three things. Number one, everything belongs to God. Okay? This church building belongs to God. This church belongs to God. The money that this church has in the bank belongs to God. You put the money in the offering plate and it goes into the church bank account. Then we vote on something you don't like how it was voted on. You say, well, I want my money back. It's not your money. It's God's money. You say, well, I shouldn't have donated it then. No, because before it left your pocket, guess what? It was God's money. (laughs) All right? We need to remember everything belongs to God. Second thing, we need to remember that we are merely stewards of our own lives. I did not say we're merely stewards of our money. I said we are stewards of our own lives. There's a cartoon that's going around the internet where the preacher's about to baptize this man. And he says, now remember, George, everything that goes under this water will belong to Jesus. And when he puts him under the water, he's holding his wallet up. (laughs) You know? (laughs) It didn't go under the water. It's God's. It all belongs to him. We need to remember that. And we need to remember that we are merely stewards of our lives. And we need to remember that we will be held accountable. Yes. So first, everything belongs to God. 
If we could internalize this concept, it would save a lot of heartache. Because we wonder, why did God take this away from me? Well, it wasn't yours. Why did God give that to him? Well, it's not his either. It's God's, right? And we get to think about what do I have versus what does he have? And the thing is, is neither I nor he have anything. God has it all. God may have just parked a few more things over on his pl- over where he's staying, but it all belongs to God. In verse 1, the Bible says, He began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it and digged a place for the wine fat and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. A certain man. Now remember, when we studied the, the parables, that these symbols all hold the same symbols throughout all the parables. And so when Jesus said a certain man, this is the Son of Man, this is Christ. So this man is symbolic of God. In our parable, what does this man do? He owns property, he plants a vineyard, he builds it up, and he furnishes it. With this information, is there any way we can dispute the ownership of this vineyard? We cannot. It's obvious. He bought the property. He planted it. He furnished it. He owns it. Right? It all belongs to him. This man owned the vineyard. Being owner of the vineyard, guess what he's entitled to? The fruit of the vineyard. If he brings husbandmen in, managers in to run the vineyard, and he works out a deal with them to cut them in on the harvest, that's his business. But at the end of the day... It all belongs to him. On what basis could the husbandman claim ownership? On what basis can an employee claim ownership of a business? It doesn't matter how hard the employee works at the business, how successful the employee is in the business, how good a job he does. At the end of the day, the business still belongs to the business owner, right? I've hired people to work on my house. They've done some magnificent work on my house. i still got to do the painting. But they've done some magnificent work on the house. Can they claim ownership to my house? No, right? It belongs, the vineyard belongs to the vineyard owner. It belongs to the man. Why? Because he built it. He created it. It belongs to him. Everything in it, the fullness of it, it belongs to him. The Bible says in Psalm 24, verses 1 through 2, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. That one kind of gets offensive to some people. They that dwell therein. We belong to God too. Why? For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. The earth is the Lord's. And not just the earth, but the fullness of the earth. That means all the good stuff that's in the earth. That means what the earth is producing. That means the wealth that is in the earth, the fruit that's in the earth. We people, we have uh, we have come up with some really amazing technologies. We've done some really wild things with technology, with with wealth, with um, merchandise. You know, I mean, think about it. I I saw something online that said that back in the late 1800s, the average farm fed about 20 people. And today, the average farm feeds about 200 people. I mean, over the past 100 years, we have learned how to maximize the yield from farming. We have learned how to build cars that get 30 miles to the gallon. 
and they have little cameras in the dashboard that show you what you're backing into before you hit it. Um, sometimes you stop in time, sometimes you don't. Um, you know, with, with cell phones that can pull up any song ever recorded and feed it through your car speakers via Bluetooth, or you can do what one man I've talked to this morning says and pull up the Bible and get the Bible to reading itself through the Bluetooth on the speakers. It's got a GPS. It'll tell you exactly how to get to where you're going, and you don't even need a Rand McNally map. Just kind of takes some of the fun out of traveling for me. But that's where we are. And, and, you know, the financial systems and what you're able to do with money and the fact that we can plan our lives financially. I mean, it, there's a lot of good things happening in, in terms of material things in the world. Guess what? That's the fullness thereof. Yeah. It belongs to God. Amen. Why? Because the Bible says in Psalm 24, 2, He hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Mm -hmm. God created it. Here's the rule. God created the world. He owns the world. He makes the rules. He created the world. He created us. He owns the world. He owns us. He makes the rules. He created all things. If you create something, you own it. If I go home and I invent a new dingle hopper, I don't know. You can imagine what a dingle hopper would look like, all right? If I go home and I invent a new dingle hopper, I have the intellectual rights over that dingle hopper. I have the copyright over that dingle hopper. You know what that means? It means that I own the dingle hopper and I can do whatever with this dingle hopper I want to do. If I want to contract it out for manufacturing, if I want to sell the rights to it to other people who want to make their own dingle hoppers, you know what you can't do? You can't take my dingle hopper. And you can't look at how I made my dingle hopper and go make your own. U.S. copyright law prevents that. And if you do manufacture dingle hoppers, you've got to pay me a royalty. That's intellectual copyright. We understand this in the U.S. legal system. We understand this with patents and everything. Why don't we understand that with God? He created the world. That's right. the, he, he created it. He gave it its fullness. It belongs to him. When you create something, you own it. You have power over it. Now, and we use that word power. There's two types of power. There's that miraculous power, and then there's the authority power. God has both. The man who spoke this world into existence, do any of us really think that we can challenge his power? Can the potter look at the, can the clay look at the potter and say, why have you made me like this? As the King James says, why hast thou made me thus? You know, we can't, we can't argue. God's in control. He's got the power. He's got the ability, but he also has the authority. Yes. I think we forget about God's power in the creation. Amen. We tend to think that he's just kind of hanging back there and all this stuff just kind of happens. That God's up there. We don't want to deny his, his existence. But didn't I build this kingdom with my own two hands? God created all things. Amen. And you know, we forget something. It was God who gave us life. Yes. Now we blame our parents for that. Obviously they had a role to play. But who determined whether those cells would bring forth life in a human being or whether they would miss each other altogether? 
Who determined whether we would be born and we would live to see the day of our birth? Who determined whether we would live and make it out of childhood? Some of us making it out of childhood was a, was a miracle. Y'all know that? I think every one of y'all on this, with the exception of my kids and Brother Wayman's kids, I think everybody else in this room rode bicycles without helmets back in the days. Your houses had lead paint on them. You, 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 uh, fat was viewed as being healthy. You know, the more cholesterol, the better. I mean, everybody smoked and they smoked indoors and nobody thought about lung cancer. You know, the fact y'all are still here is a miracle. Yeah. Right? We, we got our bicycles out, no helmet, no knee pads, stacked up about four or five bricks, put a piece of plywood over that and to see how high we can make that bicycle fly. <laughs> it's a miracle, right? I think we forget God's power in all that. But I want y'all to think about something. You think Adam ever forgot God's power? His miraculous power? We know at one time he forgot about his authority power. But his miraculous power, think Adam ever forgot about that? Imagine what it was like to be Adam. Like one day you're just there. Just poof, here you are. And you're staring face to face with God. And God says, hey, Adam, I just created you. What do you think Adam's response was? Cool. <laughs> no. Adam knew his creator's power. Yes. We need to remember that. Yes. God gave us life. <clears throat> and knowing that God gave us life, knowing that God created everything, knowing that the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, and they that dwell therein, that reminds us of this concept that we are just stewards, not just of our finances or our resources, but we are just stewards of our lives. A steward is a manager. He is someone who manages the finances and resources of another. And there is a duty to manage these resources well and even increase these finances and resources. I'm studying business right now, and I'm going through a financial management class, and one thing that this class keeps repeating is that it is the job of the CEO to improve and increase the shareholder's wealth. In other words, if somebody buys stock in your company, you are now responsible for making sure that that stock grows in value. And that's what this class is about, is how to do that. All right, the CEO is the steward of the corporation. His job is to manage it well and to grow it. Okay, now when we're talking about this, when we take this from that application and into the application in the, in the Bible times and then take that to our lives today, we are responsible to be stewards to manage our lives in a way that advances the kingdom of God. We are not just talking finances here. Oh, Brother Leland's talking financial management. He, he's going for the tithes on this one. That, that we're not talking merely about finances. That is such a small part of the overall equation. We're talking about how you run your life. Amen. Is your life being managed in a way that advances the kingdom of God? In verse 2 back in Mark chapter 12, the Bible says that the season he sent to the husbandman a servant that he might receive from the husbandman of the fruit thereof. 
the master of the vineyard sent a servant back to the people running his vineyard to get a share of the fruit that was due him. Those husbandmen were responsible for maximizing the yield from the vineyard. It was not their vineyard. It was his vineyard. He wants his fruit. He's holding them to account. At this point, they're being reminded that this is not their operation, that they are just stewards. Likewise, we are merely stewards of the life that God has given us. We're just managers of all this. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, talking about Adam, the Bible tells us that the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Guys, work is not the curse. Work is already there. The Adamic curse, the curse given to Adam, was that work would be hard and it would undo itself. Okay? So you go out and you build a barn, and then the barn's roof springs a leak and the water runs in and ruins your hay that you got stacked up inside. That's the, that's the curse. The thorns. The mesquite trees that keep popping up all over the property that you keep having to root up so you can continue to farm on it or build a church building on it. Y'all want to know how, how fast that stuff comes back? We, we put the shell on this building and we left it for a month because we didn't have money to continue with the construction. I come back and there's a mesquite, little mesquite sapling that had worked its way under the metal and was growing into one of the back classrooms. I'm like, this is one persistent little dude. He must die. Um, <laughs> But that, that's the Adamic curse. That's, that's the Adamic curse. You know, we've, we've got this nice church building here. Guess what's going to start happening pretty soon? Things are going to start breaking, right? That's the curse. The curse is you put money in a, in, a, in a mutual fund or in a stock market account, a 401k, an investment account, and the stock market crashes. That's the curse. Okay? And so that's what we're talking about here. The house breaks down. The, ha- the house starts wearing out. The, the transmission goes out. You know, that's the curse. But work was always a part of it. The difference is, before the, before the fall of man, before sin, we didn't have thorns. If we had mesquite, they, they behaved better. Um, you know, we didn't have thorns. We didn't have hogs that would root up our crops or wolves that would steal our chickens or anything like that, all right? It was a, it was a painless experience. But man was given a purpose. God created man. He created Adam. And he put him in the garden to keep it and to dress it. He has a purpose. He is a steward. This goes all the way back to the beginning. And you look at our lives, and it's the same. The parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25, each of the servants was given a talent. One was given five, one was given, one was given five talents, one was given four talents, one was given one talent. Five, two, and one. Mm-hmm. Four is where he ended. Um, the one given five went down to the exchangers. He invested the five talents, doubled his money. I want that guy as my financial advisor. The other servant went down to the exchangers, you know, invested the two talents, earned two more. He had four. Then you had the wicked servant that just had the one talent. He was afraid of losing it, so he buried it in the backyard. That talent did no good buried in the backyard. Which one was the Lord upset with? The one that buried his talents. Because the talents did not belong to the servants. The talents belonged to the master. And so they were responsible for managing those talents to expand them. How would you feel if you took your money to Edward Jones and they invested all your money with Edward Jones 
and you come back in 20 years to retire and you find out that all the money you invested, you're just getting all that back. You did, it didn't grow any. Like, well, that was a big waste of time, right? And God looks at our lives. He gives us our lives. And he expects us to use our lives to further his kingdom. Just avoiding making mistakes is not the goal. You want to, be, you want to live a righteous lifestyle. You want to live in God's will. But just focusing on personal holiness is not the sole reason God created you. And it's not the reason he has you on this earth. He has you on this earth to advance his kingdom. Are you using your life as such? One, one thing you learn, once you learn that everything in your life is his and that you're just a manager of everything, it changes everything. It de-stresses. First of all, it changes your goals and your dreams and your objectives and your aspirations. You gain a heavenly perspective. But then you see the perspective on, what about my stuff? And if you lose something, you didn't lose it. It wasn't taken away from you. God reassigned it. So when Jessica and I had to replace the transmission, God reassigned that transmission replacement money to Bruner Auto Group. And he'll reassign it from them to somewhere else. And he'll reassign it from that place until he gets it to where it needs to be. Still didn't make the the bill any easier. (laughs) But... We learn to see things from that perspective. Our lives belong to the Lord. Amen. We're just managers yes. of it. And finally, we learn that we will be held accountable for what we do concerning Christ. Amen. Now, in verse 9, the husbandmen see the son coming, and they have decided that if they kill him, they'll get to keep the vineyard. And so in verse 9, they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. This is a prophecy of what the Pharisees are going to do to Jesus. They're going to reject him. They are going to arrest him. They're going to turn him over to the Romans to be beaten and to be killed. His blood on their hands. Let me tell you something. Every single one of us who have sinned against God are guilty. Are guilty of the death of Jesus Christ. If you do not make a decision, your default position is you are one of these husbandmen who are killing the son. If you have not turned from your sins and trusted Jesus Christ as your personal savior, then you are numbered with those in the crowd that called out, crucify him, crucify him. If you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior, you stand condemned before God. You are the husbandman that did not want to yield the fruit of the owner's vineyard back to the owner. You wanted to keep it for yourself. It's my life. No, it's his life. And if you're trying to fight to keep your life to yourself, Jesus said you'll lose it. That's right. That's your default. (laughs) Thursday nights, 6 o'clock, we're watching the way of the master here here in the sanctuary. And whenever Ray Comfort goes and he asks somebody, have you ever told a lie? And they say, well, yes. What does that make you? They say, it makes me human. <laughs> and they try to justify their sin by saying, it just makes me human. I'm just normal. I'm just human. You understand that just being human is, by default, condemnation. Yes. Because the Bible says in John chapter 3 that he that believes not is condemned already. Mm-hmm. Because he has not believed on the only begotten Son of the God. Mm-hmm. He's already condemned. To be human is to be condemned. 
Now, do you want to be condemned with everybody else or do you want to be delivered from the condemnation that goes toward everyone else? God's going to hold you accountable. And the trial over whether or not we're guilty of breaking the Ten Commandments will be a fairly short trial. Because we're guilty. The evidence is all there. Y'all ever read about these trials where the jury deliberated for 15 minutes before giving a, a verdict? That the prosecution did their job that day. I mean, there was no doubt. They go back there and say, what do you guys think? Everybody says, guilty? Oh, well, all right, let's go back out. You know, you know if they deliberate for you know, a few days, there's some doubt happening there. But if it's a 15-minute jury, slam dunk victory, right? That's us and whether or not we violated God's law. That's a quick trial. What God is going to hold us accountable for and what determines whether we get into heaven or whether we go to hell is how we responded to Jesus. Now, are we going to sit here and kill the son so we can keep the vineyard? If we do that, the master of the vineyard is coming back with his soldiers. That's right. Or are we going to do what the Bible tells us in verses 10 and 11, where Jesus says, Have ye not read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner. Mm-hmm. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Mm-hmm. That's a quote of the Psalms. Mm-hmm. And there's a story in the Old Testament that when they were building King Solomon's <laughs> temple, to keep the work at the temple site quiet because it was a holy place, they quarried the rocks somewhere else and they cut the stones at a different location. They would sh- then they would move them to the temple. I'd say ship them, but they didn't have UPS back then. And so they would take them to the temple. And, and they, were, they were really good at this. They measured those things out where they're fitting brick by bit brick like Legos. I mean, it's just everything is falling right into place where it needs to fall. And then suddenly they get this one stone and it's, a really odd shape, and it doesn't fit anywhere. <laughs> well, the boys at the quarry made a mistake. Toss it over the cliff. All right, next. They get all the stones put together in the temple, and all they need now is the cornerstone. And they send word back to the quarry. Send us the cornerstone. They say, uh, we done did send that. <laughs> Turned out to be the stone they threw over. <laughs> so they went down and retrieved the stone, Put it into the temple. Now, this this is a story of tradition, but this tradition is this is where the verse, the chief stone of the corner, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief stone of the corner. Amen. They brought that stone back up. It fit perfectly. It's a picture of Christ. That's right. The cornerstone, the Amen. chief cornerstone. Amen. He was rejected, but he became the chief stone of the corner. The Pharisees rejected Jesus 2,000 years ago. They crucified him, but he is coming back, and he will be the chief stone of the corner. He will be Messiah, Christ. King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will take his throne, and we will not be able to contest him. There will be those who will try, but they will be condemned. But you know what else this means? This means when you start life, you start life in rebellion against God. You start life rejecting Christ. But when you repent of that sin and you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, guess what? He becomes the chief stone of your corner. He becomes your cornerstone. The question is, do you know him? Have you repented? Do you trust him? I'll close with this. Do we really realize God owns all things? Or do we just say that and we really go home to try to run our kingdoms? Do we run our lives as we're managers over God's resources including ourselves or are we trying to take control of it ourselves 
do we realize God's grace upon us and the salvation he has given us? And do we realize what all he's done for us? I was thinking this week, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul opens up the letter to the Romans. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. That word servant comes from a Greek word, doulos. The doulos was a bond slave. He was the lowest form of slave there was. I mean, he was, he's, he's at the bottom rung. This is the guy that gets all the bad jobs that nobody else wants. This, the, the, he, he's low of the low. Paul called himself the lowest servant of Christ. Why? Christ never told him that. And Jesus does refer to us as being his servants, but he never referred to us as a bunch of dirty, rotten, stinking slaves. He never degraded us in that language. No. Paul here is undertaking kind of self-depreciation. Why? Because when Paul looks at what he did in rebellion to Christ, and in the, Christ that, the love that Christ had for him, and the salvation that he had in Christ, for Paul, nothing he ever could do would be good enough to match that. And so in light of God's love and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul is just a bondservant. How good has God been to us? Do we appreciate it? And if so, how can we manage our lives to further his kingdom?